There's a certain search engine company that is everywhere these days. On your phone, soon to be in your car, and for the past year, it's been in the classroom. But is using Google Classroom a good thing for teachers? We debate. Plus, a Bay Area private school raises big money to expand its efforts reinventing the public school. We'll hear from the school's founder about what they'll do with an extra $100 million. All that, plus a roundup of the week's news, coming right up. Welcome to the EdSearch podcast for the week of May 4th through May 8th. I'm Mary Jo Matta. And I'm Michael Winters. Let's get started. First up, our lightning news round. Put an end to speculation that you might create permanent records or use student data for advertising purposes. That's the advice for entrepreneurs from Jules Polonetsky of the Future of Privacy Forum and Sam Chowdhury, CEO of Class Dojo. They argue that it's the role of the makers of EdTech products to help teachers understand data privacy for the products they use in their classrooms. My favorite piece of advice from Jules and Sam? Give your privacy policy the same love you give your product. You can read all of their words of wisdom on edsurge.com. Students at Eanes Independent School District in Austin, Texas, are using Desmos graphing software on their iPads during the school year. So why not use it on exams? Eighth grade teacher Kathy Yanka reasons this week that Desmos could make an exam-friendly version of the app. So she asked them, and they did. The educator-entrepreneur collaboration yielded something very effective for the classroom, and Desmos has some big plans to continue expanding the tool into further standardized testing. AT&T has announced the first class of companies in its Aspire Accelerator. Educanit, RadGuru, Learn, Mindblown Labs, and Quill will all receive a $50,000 investment to participate in the six-month remote program. The accelerator will end with a demo day in October. For those of you counting at home, including Aspire, there are now nine programs around the U.S. providing funding and advice to edtech startups. Wednesday marked the one-year anniversary since Google officially pre-announced that it would launch Google Classroom. To celebrate, Google unveiled this week several updates to its mobile app that makes it easier for teachers to keep track of classes no matter where the teacher is or what device they're on. But Google isn't the only ones giving away freebies this week. Retail and fast food chains are offering discounts and, yes, free chicken sandwiches. Yum. I know. And for you Title I school educators, you can actually get free access to the Education.com Pro subscription for 12 months, which gives you access to more than 20,000 worksheets in all subjects and more than 5,000 learning activities and science projects. And now it's time for ka Wonder Workshop has raised $6.9 million in venture capital, raising its total raise to $15.9 million. Wonder Workshop, which was formerly known as PlayEye, makes a programmable pair of robots which can be controlled from a series of apps to teach children how to code. In the world of literacy, New York City-based LightSail has announced a $3.5 million round. LightSail offers a library of over 80,000 standards-aligned texts, each embedded with assessment questions and providing data on student comprehension. The ELA market is a competitive one. I wonder how LightSail is going to channel this forward towards overtaking companies like Actively Learn and Curriculate. It is very competitive out there. I cannot wait to see what comes out of this. Same. And now let's transition into this week's deep dives. We're going to do two of them, and the first follows right from that last bit of ka news. 
San Francisco-based Alt Schools has closed a $100 million Series B round, with big-name investors like Mark Zuckerberg, the Founders Fund, and Anderson Horowitz all contributing. Now, Alt Schools currently operate four micro-schools in San Francisco, and they focus on delivering project-based curriculum supported by custom-built technologies for admissions, family communications, and personalized learning plans for students. Right, and Mary Jo, you've done a couple of pieces on Alt School in the past. Mm -hmm. Beyond the fact that it just raised $100 million, how is it different from the average public school or even the average charter school? Is it just all of the technology that you mentioned, or is there more to it than that? Well, first off, the biggest difference that people would notice is alt school costs a hefty amount of tuition, more than $20,000 a year for a student to go. So if you are attending, chances are your parents probably are able to really strongly afford it. They have some financial aid, but for the most part, the students have to pay for it themselves. For some listeners out there, you may be thinking, okay, so this is basically like a private school and there's all this money coming in, so uh, the kids must be doing pretty well because of the money. But there's, there's more to it than that. Alt school has switched up the way that they use finances. The concept behind a micro school is that there's a central office where most of the funding goes to have research staff and programmers who are there on the team to create these pieces of technology. And then each individual school site is sort of scaled down. You know, there's a couple teachers, maybe a director of curriculum, but beyond that, that's pretty much it. So that's one of the big differences. And another difference that I actually found when I went to go visit was that every single week, the teachers are taking kids out for some sort of field trip. The week that I visited, the kids were studying bridges, and so in order to buoy the lesson, the teachers took the middle school kids out to Golden Gate Bridge, and the kids got to measure the entire bridge with their very own stride. That is a heck of a field trip. It was a pretty cool field trip, and granted, you know, you couldn't do that everywhere. Rural communities might find it a little bit difficult to do that, but old school places project-based learning at the very tip-top um, of the food chain for them. And one other note, they actually mix kids up in grades, so you get sixth through eighth graders all in the same class technically. Okay, so mixing up the grades, project-based learning, a little bit of a a kind of a hub and spoke model uh, with the way that the the organization is is built. So they just got a hundred million dollars. How are they going to use that money? We actually sat down with Max Ventila, who is a former Googler and founder of Alt School, and um, he mentioned that they want to use the money for a couple things. So it's going to three things uh, in order. Predominantly, the, the, the largest amount of it is going to kind of fund internal R&D, so engineering, payroll, product, design. I mean, we have 45 technical people now and, and a lot of other people that I would consider R&D besides just those technical folks. Uh, the second thing that we're spending on is growing the footprint of our existing schools. And then, um, is, uh, which is pretty exciting for us, is going beyond just the first-party schools we operate and uh, and really working with others to have them open alt-school-like schools, ideally public schools, and have us not only provide hardware and software and structured content, but I think more importantly, all of the uh, administrative services that we do so that there are no local administrators. And you can have much smaller schools given the highly personalized mixed-age model of education that goes on in our classrooms. So uh, one of the big things is that they do want to expand and create more campuses both here and then in other states. So for example, next year they're going to be opening three more campuses in the Bay Area, 
but for the first time, they're going to be opening a school in New York, specifically in Brooklyn. Okay. And is are they looking to expand just to other private schools or to public schools as well? I mean, like you said, the alt school model is supported by not just not just venture capital, but also student tuition. That remains to be seen. There are definitely some skeptical Twitter responders. After we put up an article that we wrote on Monday, a number of people online said, now wait a second, how could you actually envision this working in the Houston Independent School District or mm. New York City Public Schools or Chicago? This is a very, very specific model that's tailored towards a very specific type of community. But Max is hell-bent on spreading this eventually to the public school systems. Though he makes a note, probably won't happen at least for another five years. So we are going to have to wait. And as Alt School continues to expand over those five years and, and beyond, you can bet that we will be covering it here at EdSearch. Mm. And you can check out Mary Jo's article from Monday, as well as several other articles we've written about Alt School over on EdSearch.com. You got it. Now, we're going to move on to the second issue that we wanted to dive into because it has to do with Google Classroom. And as I said before, it was literally one year ago this week that Google officially pre-announced that it would launch Google Classroom, a, a tool designed to help teachers organize, assign, and ultimately collect work that students are doing on Google Drive. Now, in the past year, more than 70 million assignments have been created on Google Classroom, and Google Apps for Education has amassed itself more than 40 million teacher and student users. I think it's probably safe to say that Google Classroom and just Google Apps for Education in general is pretty big. But beyond just the numbers, Mary Jo, you and I have traveled all around the country for EdSurge events in the past year, and everywhere we go, teachers and administrators are talking about Google Classroom. They're trading tips on how best to use it. They're looking for tools that integrate it and just generally raving about their experience with Google Classroom. Right. And the fact that we're bringing this up makes me think back to a couple of weeks ago when I wrote this article called Because You Asked, where a teacher actually asked us for recommendations for how to organize assignments. And in my opinion, Google Classroom was the everything bagel if you will. We'll go with that as the metaphor. Not only because you can do so much with it, but also because it's free. It's completely free. Uh, so that's why I was a little surprised when the EdSurge office got into sort of a tiff this week about whether Google Classroom is a good <laughs> thing to begin with. Yeah, tiff, tiff is a good word for it. It was, it was a discussion. Uh, nobody was hurt except for a couple of cans of Diet Coke. Yeah, our office is not a safe place for Diet Coke. No, no. You, if you come in, you do not come out if not you are at Diet all. Coke. Mm -mm. Uh, but anyway, we thought it'd be good to bring that discussion back up here on the podcast mm. because some of us, including myself, believe that Google Classroom is not such an unambiguously good thing. Okay, before we go any farther, tell me the specific reasons for why you think that. What, what are the negatives? The issue that I have is that Google Apps for Education and Google Classroom are free. Now, free in context with a number of other things is potentially dangerous for teachers. Let me explain more about yeah, that. Yeah, how so? So... We know that Google makes this all free for teachers, and we also know that the nature of education is that you cannot sell the data you collect to make a profit off of that product, right? right? And that's how Google makes money off of everything else, off of search, off of Gmail, off of just about any product that Google has. It's free for the user, and they make money off of selling the data. Off of its more consumer-facing products. Off, off of the more consumer-facing products, right? Mm -hmm. So my concern about Google Apps for Education and Google Classroom is that if the product is not making money, Google is a for-profit company, mm -hmm. that means that somewhere in the hierarchy of Google, someone is saying, 
yeah, it's okay to put money into Google Apps for Education and not expect a return. Mm -hmm. Right now, Google's making a ton of money in other places, so that's fine. You can almost think of it as sort of an internal charity project at Google almost. Mm -hmm. But in the future, we just we don't know if that will be the case. Five or ten years down the line, things might change. Google might not be able to put the same resources it's putting into Google Classroom to make it free for everybody. When that's the case, after it's already entrenched in millions of classrooms around the country, what do teachers do when suddenly it's not it's not free? So your biggest concern is that because they're not charging or really garnering any revenue off of it right now, that eventually they'll see it as dead weight and just let it loose? Potentially. But then I think about some of Google's other places that they've tried to expand. For example, YouTube. YouTube has been around for so many years at this point, and it's still not a profitable entity. But Google keeps it around because YouTube has millions and millions and millions and millions of viewers. Right. I mean, right. if anything, it's a very, very intense advertising marketing scheme. And not to say that that's the same thing that Google Classroom is, but if Google was going to just cut off dead weight from other areas of its market share because they aren't making any money, then for me, I would be surprised then that they didn't cut off YouTube in addition to Google Classroom. Sure, there's some money coming through advertising on YouTube, but it is a very, very expensive endeavor that for the most part just doesn't have the type of profit I think that anybody think, thinks it might. Yeah, I, I mean, we neither of us is, is an expert in, in Google. Mm -mm. Um, so um, you know we maybe can't d debate the, the the profit and loss statements of individual business mm -hmm. units, but I, mm -hmm. I see your point about there are other loss-making entities at Google. I just you know I get I get concerned because specifically if you compare YouTube to Google Classroom, you know if YouTube were to go away, I would probably read a lot more. But also you know that's that's the. <laughs> but if Google that, Classroom were to disappear, that would be a big issue. Exactly, especially when so many people are coming to rely on it, and probably even more in the future. Well. For all of you teachers out there then, being advocates for a tool if you wanted to stick around is probably a good thing because what we've noticed in the past with tools like EdShelf that have announced that they were shutting down, when teachers announced that they were a huge fan of it and didn't want it to go anywhere, the entrepreneurs actually put a lot of effort into sustaining it. So right. maybe it's up to your voices to keep these things from going away. Okay, well that's all the time we have for today, but before we go, a big, big announcement. We're actually going to be hosting a very special EdSurge Summit on August 4th, and here's why. This is a State of California Summit held in partnership with the State Superintendent's Office. We'll be bringing together superintendents from around California and their district teams to join us there. It should be a great time. Just head over to edsurge.com slash summits for more information. And for you companies, the deadline to apply is June 1st. By the way, thanks to Jules and Sam and all of the other writers who contributed to Ed Surge this week. And a special thanks to listener Adrian Craver Caballero, who wrote in a couple weeks ago with a question. Adrian, to answer that question, the nine companies that Blackboard has acquired since January 2014 are, from most to least recent, Remote Learner UK, Schoolwires, ParentLink, RequestDeck, Cardsmith, Perceptus, Positivo, Global Connect, and MyEDU. That's a lot of acquisitions. That was a mouthful. <laughs> and of course, thanks to all of you for listening and for reading Ad Surge. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, please tell a friend. Or two. Or five. Or seven. Or ten. Thirteen, yeah. <laughs> and hey, we changed up the intro a little bit today. If you like it or hate it, let us know what you think. Feedback at edsurge.com. 
Okay, that's it for today. I'm Mary Jo Matta. And I'm Michael Winters. We'll see you next week. This is the Ed Surge Podcast.